Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. This is the first of several episodes of Clear and Vivid, sponsored by the Sloan Foundation, and my guest couldn't be more appropriate. He epitomizes both the intellectual and the human side of science. He's Carl Dyseroth, a psychiatrist and neuroscientist who has pioneered new ways of peering inside the brain to see how it works. His research has revolutionized the field of neuroscience, and he was recognized in September with the Lasker Award, the highest honor in medical research. But Carl Dyseroth doesn't confine himself to the lab. As a practicing psychiatrist, he has a deep appreciation of the suffering of people with brain disorders, disorders he hopes his research will one day overcome. So that's, I think, the real exciting thing. We're now going to be able to take advantage of all this beautiful human genetics that has found so many linkages of genes to disorders, schizophrenia, autism, bipolar disorder, eating disorders. But where we can't quite make that final leap to what does it really mean, what's actually going wrong in the brain, now we have access to ways of taking all that genetic information and looking at the intact circuits and gaining insight into how it all makes sense together. And so that's, that's not done yet. That's the promise of, of the future. That's what's going on right now. We recorded my conversation with Carl Dyseroth shortly before the announcement of the Lasker Award. He's just published a book called Projections, so his enthusiasm was as much centered on his writing as it was on his science. I'm so glad to be talking with you today. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, I'm excited. This is great. Thanks for having me. You've combined psychiatry with bioengineering and your love of words to make an impact on the rest of us that most people don't get to do with any one of those fields. <laughs> well, you know, the one I'm most happy about lately is the words, which is uh, which is interesting. I, I always wanted to be a writer my whole life, uh, and that was my first and greatest passion. And we just had this book come out a, a month ago projections. And for me, that's coming full circle. All the other, you know, everything else in between was 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 great, but it's a very rewarding and satisfying thing to, to, to come full circle. I can understand that. I have I share your love of words. And I wanted to be a writer before I wanted to be anything else. In fact, I read someplace that you fell off a bicycle while reading Gerard Manley Hopkins. <laughs> you know, I used to ride to and from school. I particularly remember in junior high school, I would prop the books I was reading on the handlebars, and I would bike uh, <laughs> while reading. And I did hit at two occasions. I hit parked cars, and I, you know, it, that's quite a shock to be immersed in the world of, you know, of poetry, and then suddenly see yourself flying through the air uh, and landing on the pavement. Well, I love Hopkins too. I, I never fell off a bike, but I'm sure I fell off my chair once or twice. The magnitude of his achievement and in, in making people feel about words even separate from their semantic meaning was was really eye-opening for me at a, at a young age, and it definitely made me think about what feelings really were. 
running into a car on your bike is a real example of Gerard Manley Hopkins' principle of sprung rhythm. That's right. <laughs> you know, that, he really that got sprung. <laughs> so you mentioned a number of times in your book that, that uh, you, uh, so much of your time has been spent in emergency psychiatry. Does that mean in the actual ER? That's right. Yeah. So this was both, you know, all all psychiatrists as part of their early training certainly spent a lot of time in the emergency room dealing with all comers. Everyone who uh, gets referred to psychiatry by the ER uh, staff and the ER doctors. And then, but that's been a theme all the way through. I've kept doing that at least for a week, a year. It's always a, you know, it's a little stressful when I see that week coming up on the calendar, you know, because I've spent <laughs> a year doing science and writing now. Uh, and, and I wonder, boy, am I going to be up for it? But it's always incredibly invigorating. And I emerge from that week with just sort of with new purpose. It's amazing. Even though in psychiatry we don't understand as much as we'd like, we really do. We really do help people, and that is something that keeps me coming back to, to help people in these throes of, of this extreme and confusing suffering. These are people who are often, you know, terrified by what's happening, and it's so hard to explain. And I, for me, even though I don't have all the answers, I, I have some, and I can come to these patients who are are really uh, frightened and and suffering and and I can bring most of what modern science has to bear and I can help put put it in context put it in terms of something tractable biological not their fault understandable something they can hold in their hand and to see that happen again and again and see how that helps just just even a little bit of understanding helps and and for me that that's enough to keep me uh, coming back I remember an early story you'd tell in that setting about Matteo, who was brought to the OR, I think, by his, the ER by his brothers because he couldn't cry after a, a horrible experience. Yeah, this was a good example of, of of somebody who is in the absolute depths of grief. He had lost his his wife and child in the most uh, you know unimaginable way, and and he couldn't cry, and that for him was was. Uh, as as disturbing as the depression itself, uh, mm. and needed uh, some uh, explanation, needed some foundation to build upon to help make sense of it. And I didn't have the answers then, but what I I was able to spend time with him because that was all I could do. Sometimes that's all you have to give to another person is time, and and sometimes that's. That counts for something, and and it did in that case. That's so interesting because it seems that from a moment like that, where this man couldn't cry, even though he had turned his car over and watched his wife die, unable to help her, and a moment like that where you must have felt com tremendous compassion for him, you went from that in your work to being able to look inside the head and try to understand where those feelings are germinated in the brain, mm -hmm. which is a whole other view of psychiatry, it seems to me, or, or, or science, than what I remember my friends who were psychiatrists 50 years ago would talk about. They would talk more, more or less in terms of Freud's hydraulic system of the brain. <laughs> yeah, we've, we've gotten a bit beyond hydraulics, uh, and again... <laughs> We have a long way to go, but, but what we can do now is we can speak with absolute precision and rigor about 
which cells and which connections in the brain are causing symptoms and brain states and wrapping them up together into complex features that can be slightly altered or abolished or magnified. These, all these interesting and important things, which had I known would have really helped me uh, with Matteo originally, we now can speak with great rigor and precision. And part of that comes from this technology of optogenetics that we've developed that lets us turn brain cells and connections across the brain on or off during behavior. So let me understand optogenetics. This is a great opportunity talking to you to the guy <laughs> who pioneered it. You are able to take a gene from a microbe, for instance, mm -hmm. and put it in the brain of an animal. That's right. And that particular microbe is so sensitive to light that it can cause electrical activity That's right. in the part of the brain where you put it so that you can make, you can activate that very minute part of the brain from the outside. Is that, am I on the right track here? That's exactly right. So normally, you know, all the cells in the brain are electrical, so you couldn't do this electrically. You couldn't put in an electrode and provide electricity and hope to have any kind of specificity because every cell in the brain, more or less, is electrical, and so you're going to stimulate everything. But none of them respond to light because it's very dark in there, and so there's no reason <laughs> for any brain cell to respond to light, which is great for us because they're all starting from a baseline of zero light responsiveness. Anything we can provide is a big signal on top of that. And so what we do, we take these genes from algae, from microbes or bacteria that make light responsive uh, ion channels, they're called. They put a little like electricity across the surface of, the, of a cell in response to a photon of light. How do you but do that? We, How do you deliver yeah. light? Yeah, we can do a couple of ways. We developed uh, fiber optics, simple fiber optic methods, a little nearly hair thin fiber optic you can put in there. We've also developed uh, holographic methods methods you can basically play in a 3d hologram into a brain and activate multiple little neurons with little spots of light so light's a very useful tool photons get in without doing uh, damage and then you're off and running because then you're turning on or off cells with this algal gene or this microbial gene and you can see what happens with behavior and a beautiful experiment that's like this uh my colleague Catherine Dulac at, at Harvard did this experiment with optogenetics she was considering parenting the state of parenting this is parenting if you're a mouse probably not saving for their college education or anything <laughs> like that but but what a mouse can do they were doing and she uh had found a, a part of the brain that seems to control all the parts of parenting, going out and collecting the young and bringing them back to the nest and nurturing them, grooming them. And what she found was that different parts of different connections coming from this one spot, one, one connection went out to a part of the brain and, and controlled the go and get your young and find them and bring them back to the nest. But There's it didn't... a part of the brain that's dedicated <laughs> to that? If you're a mammal, oh yeah, you betcha. Wow. <laughs> and... That by itself was interesting, but it that part didn't control the grooming. So the animals would just collect them, but but not groom them. Another part uh, was more the, the grooming part, but not the collection part. Uh -huh. And so these different features of parenting, uh -huh. this quintessential state that is so intrinsic to, to, to who we are as mammals, you can deconstruct it effectively with optogenetics, break it down into its parts and see how they're assembled. And so that was a beautiful paper just a couple of years ago 
2018 from 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 the Duloc lab. We did a similar thing with anxiety. We we could break down anxiety into its parts. I saw a video of a mouse who was anxious if the walls of the maze were too low, felt safe with high walls, right? And you That's zapped right. his anxiety circuit or whatever it was, and you got him to move outside into the part that would have made him anxious, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So that was that that was the behavioral part of anxiety. We all know when we were anxious, we try to avoid these situations that even if they're not actively threatening, we worry there might be something there. And so there's avoidance, behavioral avoidance, like the mouse avoiding being exposed or like we avoid, you know, giving talks or going on podcasts or things like that. (laughs) Don't say it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to pull the switch on your zapper. Well, uh, that brings up a question. I'm assuming this hasn't been done in human brains while people are alive. Actually, there is a, a recent uh, study from my colleague, uh, Botan Roska in Switzerland, and he, he took uh, optogenetic uh, tools from microbes. Just, this was just published a, a couple months ago. And he helped human beings who were blind, uh, who had a, a retinal degeneration and, and couldn't see anymore. And he used optogenetics to, to uh, give them some light sensitivity back to their eyes. So he, he, you know, he literally made someone who was blind see something again, at at least become sensitive to to light and able to respond to it. So how invasive is it? How do you get the gene into the precise area of the brain that you wanted to? And then how do you get the light in? That sounds invasive too. Yeah. So in the human case, uh, uh, going with the retina was was pretty smart uh, for Botond because he didn't have to, he could just use the transparency of the eye transparency of the eye to get the light in. And so what he did is he had the patients wear goggles that just took the visual scene and amplified it, turned up the intensity a little bit and projected it onto the eye. So it was just like in Star Trek, you know, the the goggles that the the, the blind character wore, uh, uh, Geordie. And then uh, and then the gene, though, the same exact methods that we developed for, for animals apply in human beings. There are very safe ways of getting genes into... Uh, human cells, including brain cells now. Uh, these are called uh, AAVs, adeno-associated viruses. There's hundreds of clinical trials where they've been proven to be safe, uh, including in human brains. They just carry, this is a cold-related virus. Um, nobody's big fans of viruses, especially these days, but this is a very safe virus that, that doesn't cause any problems, and it just delivers the gene. How does the gene know where to go? Ah, so a couple important things on that to, to realize first is the um depending on how you do it it's where you inject the virus that matters the the cells around it there'll be some distribution a few millimeters where what you inject will get all the cells around there but we can actually be even more clever about that and we do this in optogenetics in in animals all the time there's a little bit of dna that you can package in there along with the light sensitive uh, protein gene. And this little bit of DNA makes the protein only made in some cells, but not others. This is a little bit of DNA called a promoter. And it's part of how DNA normally allows different cells to do different jobs. You know, you've got brain cells and kidney cells and heart cells, and they all do different things. 
That's because of the different proteins they make to do their jobs. And all those have different little bits of DNA. All those genes have little bits of DNA called promoters that say, I'm only going to be on in this kind of cell, and I'm only going to do my job in this kind of cell. So we use those little bits of DNA to give us some specificity as well. But then you also make the brain transparent. Tell me about how you make the brain transparent. What's hydrogel? Yeah. And how do you use it? <laughs> well, you know, this, is, this was a, an innovation that came later after optogenetics. We developed this in my lab beginning uh, uh, about 2009, 2010, and we published this in, in 2013. This is a method of making brains and any tissue transparent. You can see through it, but the key information is still there. People who grew up in the Midwest might have had uh, jello with embedded bits of fruit and marshmallow inside. It's a sort of a Midwest classic. Uh, it's a little bit like that. You can see through it. It's It's got similar consistency, but the the little bits of fruit and marshmallow are like the biomolecules that are interesting. You can still see where they are. And if there are cells that are in an important 3D arrangement, you can keep track of them and realize, oh, this is the cell that's in this layer in this spot of the brain. But look, look at all the genes it expresses. Look at the proteins it puts on its surface. This is the power of hydrogel tissue chemistry. And the first form of this was called clarity. Now, and just to be clear for myself, this is, this is not a living brain, right? No, that's right. Thank you for <laughs> clarifying that. <laughs> this is a this is, happens after life. We do this in in uh, animal brains, but you can do it in human tissue as well, which we have done. Uh, uh, and it could be uh, you know a biopsy tissue from a living person. So this this can be you know a lymph node or a, a cancer biopsy. So, so do you see connections that you wouldn't otherwise see if you had to examine the innards of a brain by making slices, thin thin slices? Do you get more of a sense of the three-dimensional structure and therefore, I guess, the important circuits you're looking for? That's exactly right. So there's there's so much spatial information. You know, let's just start with the brain. I mean, our the surface of our brain, the cortex, as we call it, it's this thin sheet of cells that's like six uh, pancakes stacked on, stacked on top of each other. It's got six layers, one, two, three, four, five, six. It's more like crepes, actually. They're very thin. And... <laughs> You know, wrinkly, my, my like, brain especially is like crepes, crepes and rigatoni. Well, well that's good. Uh, you like the more wrinkled your brain is, like a crepe, the better. Uh, that, so I'm I'm heartened by that. Uh, but uh, and and these different layers do different jobs. And so if you lose track uh, of which layer you're in, you're losing a key part of the big picture. And so by preserving the 3D information, we can just look and say, okay, here we are in layer five, here we are in layer two, uh, and we're in this part of the brain, and here's the cell, and by the way, here's what it's surrounded with, here are the connections it's making, here's where its axon goes, that's its outgoing uh, connection that lets it recruit other cells. And so you preserve all that spatial information uh, that's fundamental to understanding. Otherwise, it's 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 a bit like taking a computer and and breaking it down to all its component parts, having it in a box, you know, and then trying to figure out the the important yeah. structure. I'm supposing the answer to this question is no, but it just on the chance that it might be yes, is there anything about your ability now to see into a transparent brain that gives you a clue as to the health of various circuits? Yeah, great question. So what we've most recently done is is we've now taken this hydrogel tissue chemistry concept and we now can sequence all the genes that are expressed 
at the cellular level. This is a, a version of hydrogel tissue chemistry that we call StarMap. We just published this in the, over the last few years. This lets us uh, look at dozens or hundreds of genes in every cell that's still within this, this hydrogel matrix. And we can look for signatures of, of disease, of, of altered uh, function. Mm. So that's, I think, the real exciting thing. We, we're now going to be able to take advantage of all this beautiful human genetics that has found so many linkages of genes to disorders, schizophrenia, autism, bipolar disorder, eating disorders. But where we can't quite make that final leap to what does it really mean, what's actually going wrong in the brain, now we have access to ways of taking all that genetic information and looking at the intact circuits and gaining insight into how it all makes sense together. And so that's that's not done yet. That's the promise of, of the future. That's what's going on right now. When we come back from our break, Carl Dyseroth tells me how a patient with autism, along with some autistic mice, have given him new insights into how circuits in the brain can become overloaded. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. The goal is to bridge the two cultures of science and the humanities by supporting an array of artistic works depicting science including books, radio, television, film, theater, and new media. For more information, visit Sloan.org or follow at Sloan Public on Twitter or Facebook. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Carl Dyseroff. You talked about a patient that you saw who was autistic, Charles, and you focused on uh, how difficult it was for him to make eye contact, which is, of course, a, a symptom of autism. Mm -hmm. But when you found out more about what was happening there, it seemed to have been a transcendent moment for you. Yeah. Why was it? What What was going on there? Yeah. So this, in my clinic, I try to help um, patients with depression symptoms and also with autism spectrum uh, symptoms. Those are the, my two clinical focus areas in my outpatient clinic. And I'm interested in autism particularly because of how hard it is to treat. There aren't good medications for it. And also, a lot of the adult autism patients don't really have, uh, you know, care from people who really have known them for a long time and understand them. A lot of them were treated by their pediatricians before they were 18, and then they're kind of out in the world without someone who's thought deeply about them for a while. And so, they're an underserved population, not as well understood, and they suffer greatly in many cases from anxiety and depression relating to some of their challenges in the world. This was a patient, Charles, who uh, had uh, autism and also had uh, anxiety, severe anxiety symptoms. And his autism involved very profound avoidance of eye contact. He, and this is, as you say, very common in, in autism spectrum disorder uh, people. And he would really, uh, it was quite hard for him to, to do that, to make any kind of prolonged eye contact. And this is very disruptive to the normal process of, of conversation and making connections. 
And after a while, I had I'd been treating his anxiety and I successfully. And so we were able to really effectively eliminate his anxiety and his panic. But the eye contact symptom was completely unchanged. And so he wasn't I, he wasn't avoiding eye contact because of anxiety, apparently. Right. Exactly. You took care of that and he still avoided contact. Exactly. So that was by itself pretty interesting. And that's been observed before. It was, it was good for me to be able to see it in, in my hands as well, that, that that was not an anxiety issue that was driving the eye contact. But I talked to him about it and I said, what, you know, what, why? This was after I'd treated him for more than a year. So we had a good relationship. This wasn't out of the blue. But I asked him, why, why do you avoid eye contact? Is it, is it, is it fear or anxiety? And he said, no, absolutely not. So that that fit with the lack of response to the anti-anxiety treatment. I said, what is it? What What is the issue? And he gave a very clear description. He said, if I am looking at you while you're talking, I have to think about everything about it, about your face and your eyes and what it means. And I, I'm trying to keep track of it. And it just overloads everything. And so I said, so, so I, for me, this was just an amazing description. And I, you know, I confirmed with him. So it's, so it's overwhelming. It's too much information. And he said, yes, absolutely. So here was a, a patient who severely suffering from, from autism, at least for this, for this major symptom. And, but yet verbal enough to give this crystalline depiction of, of the, what he perceived as the cause. And if this is to back, go back to your earlier question. This was for me, indeed, a, quite a transcendent moment because it was, although I, I, I uh, to this day, I, I can't help his eye contact issue, uh, which I would like to and working on it, just understanding of this was so important. This was the only, you know, I think of everybody who who is working in the lab, working hard to understand these sorts of things, who has not had the the privilege of having that sort of human to human conversation interaction, having that clear description of what the symptom really was, to me that encapsulated the value of, of combined clinical uh, work and, and, and basic science. Mm. And for me, it made me feel that it was all, it had all been worthwhile, actually. How did that inform your understanding of autism? So what we were able to do after that, you know, and along the way, a lot of this is, it's not really sequential, it's back and forth. I, I see patients, I come to the lab, I, I help guide my amazing students and, and, and postdoctoral uh, folks on their work, and then I go back to the clinic. And one thing we were able to do was was to say, you know, let's measure the information carrying capacity of neurons in real information, bits per second, which we can do, and let's see how changes that relate to altered social behavior affect information flow. Are there changes in that relate to autism that affect the information carrying capacity of, of circuits? And so we were able to directly ask and answer that that question, and we found, you know, that we have. Uh, you know, there are genes strongly linked to autism, and there's a whole, you know, uh, panoply of them. And, and But in some cases, many of these, if you give these altered genes to mice, they have altered social behavior. Mice are, are social just like they parent. And, and again, 
not like us, probably not trying to build lifelong relationships, but they <laughs> they like being with each other more than they like being alone, even unrelated to, to mating or, or anything else. And that's altered if they have these these genes that alter that are altered in human beings with with autism. And so we can create mice that have altered social behavior, and we were able to affect their the information throughput in their uh, neurons by shifting the balance of excitation and inhibition in the brain. And we were able to turn up or down social behavior. All this done with with optogenetics, but 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 you know rigorously and causally affecting some cells to be more active than others tracking information flow uh, and tracking social behavior. And so this this is this is what one thing that makes the, the modern uh, era so exciting is is we can go back and forth from human beings describing symptoms uh, to the best of their ability and now with with rigorous and causal tools tools that that make things happen, uh, we can uh, approach deeper insight that then lets us go back to the patients and say, you know we might not have all the answers but Here's something we do understand about what you're feeling. And I love it that you not only can tell the brain what to do with regard to specific behaviors, but the brain can talk back to you with optogenetics, right? You can get the brain to tell you stuff. So indeed, we, we listen as much as we speak to the brain these days. And we can do this through a variety of methods while we're playing in while we're acting like the conductor of the orchestra, we're also listening to the orchestra, which of course is great, right? That's that's the full picture. And we can do that through a number of different methods. We can do this uh, listening in with electrodes. We can use electricity. And modern electrodes are wonderful this way for listening because all the cells are electrical and they're all using these little blips of electricity. And you can recognize individual cells by the shape of their little blip. And so actually... Even electricity is perfectly good for recording from many neurons all at once. Uh, you can still tell them apart. And but we can also use use optical tools as well to to uh, to listen to the neurons uh, effectively. And and we have um, developed ways that make that all work together with optogenetics. So you play in using one color of light activity, and you can read out with another color of light. Huh what the cells are saying in response. And we call these all optical experiments, play in and read out with light. And that, that's pretty fun, and the students love it. Well, thank you for reporting back to us what you're finding <laughs> out. I just, I'm, It's fascinating, and you, it's amazing what a wide range of areas you're able to cover and, and bring us a better understanding of the brain. Well, I, you know, it's, we have a, a long way to go, but the, the, where we are now is is really promising. And I, there's one thing I wanted to, to share with the world and, and also people who, anybody who's thought about the brain, whether in health or disease, people who might have a friend or family member suffering or themselves, but also anybody who's, who's thought about the mysteries of the brain, what makes it so amazing and so mysterious. We, we have ways that can help uh, think about these things in a, in a, in a scientific way, but in a deeply human way too. These, these relate to our innermost feelings that we can't describe, that we can't show, that we all know. And so the, the hope is that people uh, reading projections will, will gain a deeper understanding of themselves as well. Great. Before you go, we, we end our show with seven quick questions. Okay. <laughs> and they're roughly related to communication. Of all the things you're exploring in the world, personally and in your work, what do you wish you really understood 
Well, I'd like to understand the nature of feeling. What what is the physical manifestation of of feeling, and and that's what got me into this whole mess in the first place. Is is that is wondering that. So that's there. You have it. The physical nature of feeling. Okay, number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Uh, you know, psychiatrists uh, are pretty diplomatic. Usually, we're conflict avoidant. We like to not. Uh, make people mad. Uh, so, I, I, <laughs> so I, I will often <laughs> just, you just might, say, "Tell me about that." <laughs> that's right. Tell me more. <laughs> I, I I I could say uh, you know here's another way uh, to look at it. Ah, ah, good. Okay. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Well, now you're asking a psychiatrist that, okay? And and I've been asked more strange things than you can possibly imagine. Um, and, uh, <laughs> but, I'm, but I, uh, was trying to think what's, uh, what's podcast friendly. Um, <laughs> you, you can, you can, you can be frank. Well, you know, as a, one interesting thing as a, you know, I, when you treat schizophrenia patients, um, uh, and you, you try to help them as much as you can, a lot of times they will, uh, find themselves uninhibited in, in commenting upon you, and uh, it's interesting when when a, a patient with, with schizophrenia asks you about yourself because you wonder are they seeing something that I should have seen, or are they just imagining things? And um, you know, I I remember uh, a, a patient with schizophrenia asking me uh, very detailed uh, questions about my facial uh, stubble, how I got it to that length and that shape, and <laughs> And I, I tried to respond, but I didn't know if it was part of a deeper uh, issue. And so I, I tried to be very diplomatic and and simple and not not cause too much trouble. But uh, <laughs> that was a an, an out of left field question uh, that I, I I didn't quite expect. But I've had much more bizarre questions, I will say, but I won't r- repeat those here. All right, our next question: How did you get your facial stubble to that length? <laughs> What facial stubble? I don't have any. Are you, you must be hallucinating. Okay. <laughs> right, sure. It's always my fault. Okay. <laughs> I'm resisting. Okay. Yes. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, well, you know, um, again, and this, this is something that people who deal with family therapy often have to deal with. If you've got a room full of people, one person is monopolizing the conversation, you know, how do you, how do you redirect? And and this, there's not an easy answer, but one thing is that uh, I found that you know quiet uh, but uh, continuous um, uh, redirection is is very effective, and so mm. I don't try to ever talk over somebody. But I I uh, with my voice, my body language, I I convey that I'm saying something you know interesting that they they might find interesting. And I I find that even a, a loud or compulsive talker will start to notice that. Uh, if you just keep talking in a quiet, measured way, but with a uh, with body language that that conveys that you really might want to listen to this, that's very interesting. I'm going to try that next time, <laughs> or I'll notice it when somebody tries it on me. <laughs> exactly. Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table and you're next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a, a genuine conversation with that person? You know, I. I Small talk gets a lot of uh, you know grief, uh, 
I I think it's it's it it's that's a bad rap. I, I think it gets things going. Um, you know, I, I always look for shared experiences. I look for something we're likely to share and connect on. You know, that's that's all people are looking for anyway, is connection. We want to connect with other people, we want to share experiences. And so I look for any any likely, you know, shared experience and, and start from that. That's that's what it's all about in the end is is connection. What gives you confidence? Ah, uh, well, <laughs> hope. I guess I have I have more hope than confidence. That's that's what keeps me going. Is is uh, you know there there are things that need to be better, and I really hope they can be better. Last question: What book changed your life? Uh, that's a great question. Um, there's so many that have affected me in in different ways. There's a a writer, Spanish language writer, uh, Borges, Jorge Luis Borges, who had an immense influence on me. I, in high school, I, I took a Spanish literature course all in, in the original Spanish. He was a great uh, writer who also wrote in English as well as in, in Spanish, but we read his work in, in Spanish. And he had this mathematical uh, take on being human that was very appealing to me. He has this, he had this very, uh, you know, sort of Byzantine, you know, enigmatic problem-solving approach to the nature of, of, of feelings and and the nature of being human that that was really important to me. I, I think it kind of gave me some hope that uh, that these really were the same thing that that feelings and math and and physics, in some way, uh, it's all the same problem. And I still kind of think that. And I, what we've done uh, hasn't changed my view on that at all. In fact, it has strengthened it a bit. So in some ways, I'm, I think I'm still following that, that inspiration from, from Borges. That's great. Thank you so much for a really fun conversation. I really <laughs> appreciate it. Well, thank you, Alan. Uh, really, I'm so glad to be here. And thanks for the great questions. It's, it's delightful. Any, anytime you want to talk again, uh, I look forward to it. Oh, that's great. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Clear and Vivid is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation's Program in Public Understanding, which aims to enrich people's lives through a keener appreciation of our increasingly scientific and technological world, and to portray the complex humanity of scientists, engineers, and mathematicians. Carl Dyseroth is Professor of Bioengineering and Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Stanford University and he serves as attending physician at Stanford Hospital and Clinics. For his work on optogenetics and hydrogel tissue chemistry, he's won many awards, most recently the 2021 Albert Lasker Basic Medical Research Award. His book about his life and work is called Projections, A Story of Human Emotions. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. 
You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with John LaPook. John has the vitally important job of keeping the nation up to date on the latest advances in medicine in his role as chief medical correspondent for CBS News. But science is constantly evolving, and some people are beginning to mistrust science because one day researchers say one thing, and the next they seem to say the opposite. The data is changing minute by minute, and yet you're trying to give this very important public health advice, and people don't quite understand that. Well, wait a second. Why are you telling me something different today from two weeks ago? They wouldn't ask that of a weatherman, right? They wouldn't ask that of a weatherman. You said yesterday to wear a raincoat when it was raining, and now today, it's, it's a beautiful day. Why did your advice change? Dr. John LaPook, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.